Welcome to the Mosh Zone episode 167, week 167, volume 167, number fucking 167. Hey, on guys, how's your week been? Thank you for tuning in. This week's guest is Daniel of Die Young and also of Tooth and Claw, and that will be coming up later in the show. Not much to kick off the start of the show with except thank you and a shout out to everyone that got in touch after we returned with some album reviews on the show last week. Thank you to everyone for their support, their excitement and their feedback. So last week was Album of the Month for June. Hope you guys are excited. Album of the Month for July won't be too far away. Already been deep diving into it and excited for that show soon. So enough of the ramblings, enough of the jibber-jabber. Let's get into the main part of the show. This week I got to sit down with Daniel of Die Young and also of Tooth and Claw. First thing I got to say, thank you so very, very, very much, dude, for taking time out for me and the Mosh Zone. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. So who are Die Young? Well, in case you're unaware or uneducated, they formed in 2002. Still technically active in some ways, they still play gigs every now and then. They're a band that has five EPs and three albums to their name. Style-wise, it's frantic hardcore, it's essential hardcore. If you are a fan of the hardcore game, you need to be into Die Young. Great band, iconic band, legendary band. Now the other band that Daniel's in is Tooth and Claw. For those that are familiar with that band, that would be because we had Scott from Earth Crisis, who's also in Tooth and Claw, previously on the show. Now, Daniel is an exciting guest because he dabbles in a bit of everything. When I say this man is multi-talented, do not take those words lightly. Daniel's a musician, he's an athlete, he's an advocate, and he's an author. This was in-depth, exciting. So grateful that I got this to happen. I loved every minute. I hope you do too. That chat with Daniel is coming up now. But uh, basically, everyone gets the same start-off question, and it's uh, not a heavy band per se, but do you remember discovering music because of a certain band at a young age? So, So, for example, with me, it was, for some reason, around five or six I became obsessed with Aerosmith. Don't know why, but I did. Was there a band mm-hmm. for you at a young age you became obsessed with? Ooh, I would say um, <laughs> it's really strange. You know how uh, there's the saying that you don't know why your favorite song is your favorite song. It's just it's just the sound you like, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Uh, I remember it had to be like first or second grade or something like that listening to rock radio in Houston, Texas and that song uh, right here right now by Jesus Jones. <laughs> <laughs> I love that song and I got that I made my mom buy me the tape of that album Doubt and then they mm-hmm. had a, a a second LP come out called Perverse and I loved that. And you know what? I can't even tell you what those albums sound like anymore cuz it's been <laughs> probably 30 years since I listened to him, but, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I, I, I remember that being like the first like rock band that I was like, it made me want to listen to, to like rock radio and stuff, you know? Um, 
Cause, cause, well, actually, prior to that, man, like kindergarten, first grade, it was all about MC Hammer. Oh yeah, those pants. You know, those yeah, pants. I wanted those baggy pants, and I tried to. I did it. I remember I did a talent show in first grade where I tried to dance like. That. <laughs> <laughs> hey, but... somebody could probably blackmail me if they find that VHS, but. Um, I had that on cassette. I had um, yeah. whatever that album was. I had it on cassette as well, and that was my jam for a year yeah, at man. least. Like, that Hammered was, on. Oof. Um, so I mean, you kind of—I di- mean, it's a natural thing. You kind of discover what you discover at a young age because what's on radio mm-hmm. or TV. Mm-hmm. Um, but when do you start really getting into something that's more? I don't want to say what you were listening to isn't guitar-driven, but what did you start getting into that was seriously guitar-driven? That, that would definitely be like fifth grade with the whole grunge revolution. Uh, you know, Nirvana, Nevermind, and In Utero. And then, you know, as right as I got into it, the dude fucking killed himself. Mm. So that was big news. And for like an 11-year-old, it, it really kind of shook my world up. Um, and But, you know... Nirvana, uh, Pearl Jam, Smashing Pumpkins, Siamese Dream. That was a big one. I got that tape. I remember I had to go with my family to church on like Christmas Eve and I had just gotten that tape and I had snuck in my Walkman and I was listening to it like secretly <laughs> in church and my aunt got really mad at me. And I was like, no, but this is so awesome. <laughs> so, I mean, um, is, is that the band or that kind of style that made you want to kind of start delving into music as more than just something to listen to because you know yeah doing my homework I know you kind of you kind of started really branching out in guitar per se so yeah yeah uh you know I mean that was the stuff that was you know the guitar revolution kind of music for me because it was also really accessible when I got a guitar remember one of the first songs I ever learned was plush by stone temple pilots which Mm. core stone temple pilots was another uh you know, tape that I got in the beginning there when I was getting into Alice in Chains and all those other bands I just mentioned. So um, those were all very pivotal for me wanting to learn guitar. And from there, you know, then it was like Metallica Black Album. Mm-hmm. And from Black Album, I actually got into the older Metallica stuff. Um, I, I was a little scared about the concept of heavy metal. Uh in like fifth grade, <laughs> I thought it was actual devil music, and that <laughs> that actually scared me. Um, I thought my you know parents and grandparents were gonna be really upset or whatever. <laughs> and uh, but you know that then then when I got a guitar and I learned all the power chords, then it was like it was all about learning Metallica stuff. So um, that reaction to heavy music, though, I mean, I think if anyone says they weren't in some ways taken back when they first heard it, I mean, I remember for me, you know, I discovered Metallica and Pantera and Iron Maiden at kind of the same time. And mm-hmm. for me, the reason I didn't really get into Iron Maiden was that whole Eddie character actually scared the fucking shit out of me. I did, <laughs> I, I couldn't, you know, every footage they or picture had Eddie in the background and I was just like, I don't like this because of that. <laughs> it's, it's, in, it is, it's a real reaction that a, that a young kid will have. Yeah. You know, I mean, I didn't, you know, I was, I was raised by a single mother who, She's, she was raised Christian, but I think she was mostly an agnostic. And so we only really went to uh, church 
to appease my grandparents who weren't like pushy Christians. They were just, you know, they wanted the family together and do things like that, especially at least on Christmas, Easter, things like that. And, um, and even my mom, I, I remember the, my, my metal obsession was, was getting questionable to her because, uh, I wanted to buy fear factory demanufacture one time. I was like 12 years old or something. And, you know, I didn't have a lot of albums in that genre yet. And she looked at it and goes, there's a song called Piss Christ on here. You're not <laughs> buying this. And, and, you know, for me, it's like that was really edgy. I just like the aggression of the music and the groove. And, you know, I, you know, I can't really say pinpoint. I can't really pinpoint what it is about heavy music that had such a lure. Um Part of it maybe was the forbidden fruit aspect of there's things that my parents and my family's like, they, they want to hide it from me. Um, even though they weren't like fundamentalist religious people or anything like that, they just, they were uncomfortable with it. And, um, at, at first I, I, that, that wasn't really something that appealed to me, but, but over time, once I saw how sensitive people get about those issues, I thought, yeah, bring it on. Like, let's offend everybody with everything. <laughs> <laughs> which I, I think I went through a phase of trying to do that and die young early on. I think it, I think it's the kind of music where I'm not going to downplay people that don't, but I think part of the excitement, as you said, is that it, it shocks and it thought provokes and it makes you think mm -hmm. and question what's going on. So mm -hmm. was there a point in your, you know, musical discovery where you started to veer into bands that were doing that. And I'm not saying Metallica don't make you think, but I'm saying like on the spectrum of that style of music, it's probably a bit watered down in that concept. Well, I think probably the first band where I really started to wonder what they were singing about was bad religion. Mm. Um, you know, I mean, I, I had gotten into green day and offspring prior to them. I mean, we know bad religion pretty much influenced bands like that and that those bands then got on the pop train and became like commercial successes and uh and, and i mean even like it, it was the smash album by offspring which i liked the song bad habit about road rage mm -hmm. and about it was just a really vulgar song and i remember they played it in an award show and people were having this con controversy about how, cause they had to bleep out like half the song <laughs> <laughs> and um i thought that was so cool right and uh but then when I heard Bad Religion, I was like, oh, like, this sounds like The Offspring, but with nerdier lyrics, <laughs> mm. you know? And and I remember, like, just being kind of intrigued by the vocabulary of Greg Graffin. Mm. Mm. And and, um, and I realized he was doing, he was he had a different kind of message. It wasn't about a, offending. It was really about thinking. Um, and that was, I mean, I, I have bad religion, bad religion tattoo on my leg, you know? I mean, to me, there's still just one of the greatest, most thought-provoking bands ever. And um, I, I even remember when I took the SAT uh, in, in high school, there were some words in, in the like literary part of it that's like, oh, I learned those words from Bad Religion. <laughs> and so they helped me <laughs> get a better score, I think. So, um, yeah, I mean, well, once, once I – that was probably one of the first – bands that I sat down and tried to pick apart the lyrics and I was probably in seventh or eighth grade when I got the gray race mm. by bad religion and um and, and I I really started to focus on what's being said here you know 
um, because it wasn't obvious what, what was being said to me because it was a little more complicated where, whereas I had like, um, ignition or smash by the offspring and I'd read the lyrics, but they're very like plain speak, you know? Hmm. So, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't so intrigued about, you know, expanding my mind, what they were saying. I just liked the, the punk vibe of, you know, fuck this and fuck that. And I'll shoot you <laughs> if you get in my way on the highway, you know, like I thought that's funny, you know, but, um, but yeah, no, I, I would credit it to probably bad religion. What about, um, you know, we're talking about high school years. Uh, what are you like with your path? You know, a lot of listeners can relate that and myself as well, is that when you're in high school, you're told you need to want a path to do X, Y, and Z and anything like music is something that shouldn't be considered because, as my dad said, it's a Mickey Mouse thing. So what were you like in the high school end years? Were you focusing on a few things or was music your be-all and end-all? Ooh. Um, I, don't, I don't think I was really sure. Uh, I kind of – I gravitated towards literary things. I'm more of a literary mind than a, a numbers-oriented person. And I, I could sleep through English, like AP English or whatever, and ace it. And, and I enjoyed reading, although I didn't enjoy being told what to read. Mm. Um, but I, I kind of – thought, well, you know, my family was pushing me to go, go to university and, um, I, I, I did well in school. So I thought, well, I guess that's what I'm supposed to do. I mean, what else am I supposed to do? Uh, you know, I had, I had a band called finer truth that we started probably freshman year mm-hmm. and, um, we weren't like a, a particularly hardcore straight edge band then, but I remember sophomore year we reinvented it with new lineup and we, well, cause we had all heard earth crisis at that point and been like, that's what we want to do. So, um, sophomore year we started that band and we played a lot of shows locally and started playing around Texas while we were still in high school. Like we'd play on the weekends and, uh, I knew that I wanted to go on tour and, we basically planned for, you know, senior year at the end of the year, we, that summer we were, we were going to go on tour, uh, which we did, but you know, I was still planning to come home and go to, to school, start my freshman year of college, uh, that fall. So, uh, I, I didn't really know what I wanted to do in school or what I wanted to be. I just figured, uh, maybe I'll be like an English teacher. Hmm. And, uh, it, or maybe, you know, maybe something psychology oriented. I don't, or I don't know, you know, um, I still, to this day, you know, I mean, literature and psychology, human behaviors, things that I'm always just reading about anyway, you know, like pet interests of mine, but, um, yeah, I don't. I didn't really know. So once we went on that tour that summer after high school, I was like, I don't really want to go to school now. I just want to do this. <laughs> and, uh, yeah. So, but, but, you know, some of the guys were going to school and they weren't going to be as invested in the band thing with me. So, uh, we, we did a couple tours as, as fire truth, maybe three. 
And by the third one, we had band problems and uh, we lost a bunch of money and uh, we, we got, we kind of turned on each other. At least some of us did for the time being and the band imploded. And I was like, well, uh, what I'm going to do is start a band that's a little more punk oriented and like, I don't need people who can play their instruments as well. <laughs> Just make it like more efficient so we can buy a van and go on tour and, and not worry a little bit more crass and, and punk ethos minded than, than like a nineties uh, upstate New York metallic hardcore band kind of thing where you need people that can really play their shit. Um, but I, I, you know, looking back, I, I'm not putting anyone who ever played in Die Young down. I think we actually were all pretty good for as far as hardcore goes. But, um, but it was, it was, it was at that time that, you know, half the guys were going to commit to school and being adults that finer truth fell apart. And then I was like, I'm not, I don't want to go back to school. You know, I, I went for a year and, and, and it was like torture. I was just thinking about my next tour. Well, you know, you, you mentioned touring and you mentioned with Finer Truth, you know, playing some shows and getting out there. For you, around the Finer Truth time, did you notice a local scene within Texas that was, you know, I use quotation marks here, vibrant? Because, you know, being honest, when, as an outsider from America, when I look at America, Texas isn't something that usually gets spoken about as a vibrant heavy music scene so when you were coming up what was the texan scene like it actually was great and uh you might not hear about like bands basically influencing the genre from texas until more recently but uh i would say all the bands that came through on tour were like man you kids are cool like you got the right vibe like we have the most fun here you know and and i believe that i don't know if they just said that everywhere they went but um we actually had a really good, good positive thing like Dallas, Houston, San Antonio, um, Austin at the time seemed to be a little bit older and, uh, only like kind of special shows would happen, you know, like it's a college town. Um, and I still think sometimes Austin, which is right in the middle of Texas and it's the second biggest college campus in the United States. Um, sometimes it's, a, it's not so much a cohesive scene there, even though a lot of high profile things happen there. Um, cause you could have a DIY show and only 20 people show up, mm. but you could have the big reunion show. that's like a big to do. And people come from all over Texas or in even nearby States to go have a weekend in Austin. You know what I mean? Uh, but but I, I remember, like, Finer Truth could go play South Texas, Laredo, Corpus Christi. We could play San Antonio. Um, we could play uh, Dallas-Fort Worth. And, I mean, it was almost always great for us. And, you know, the shows, I mean, the shows would be like, sometimes they'd be big hardcore shows, but sometimes they'd just be, you know, what, you're 50, 60 people and a, and a really good time and a really good vibe. And, uh, and what I liked about Texas back then was, you know, the scene wasn't so big that we would have a lot of mixed shows. It'd be like emo bands, metalcore bands, hardcore bands, youth crew bands. Um, and I think that was special. There was an open-mindedness about it. Mm. And, uh, I mean, I, I think that really shaped my, my taste in underground music is I, I just never thought, oh, I'm only into this one kind of thing, you know? 
Uh, yeah, cross cross genre bill lineups, uh, bills as you put it, is the same. When I was growing up, they they are essential to creating my diverse musical taste that I have today. You know, if I only went to hardcore shows or um, metalcore shows or thrash shows, I don't think I would be as diverse in my tastes. It, it's in- essential, and for someone like yourself who's in a band or was in a band that was coming up, it also influences you that you can see that anything is possible. You don't have to be pigeonholed. Yeah, I always found that um, it's the spirit that counts. I mean, you can call it punk or you can call it hardcore. To me, if I watched a band like, uh, to speak of like national type bands um, or bands that weren't from my area, let's take a band like, like Planes Mistaken for Stars which mm-hmm. is one of my favorite bands. Um, but they could play with Converge. They could play with Hot Water Music. Um, they could play with a local band that we had called The Tie That Binds. I don't know if they ever did. But sometimes they came to Houston, they'd play with a band, a metalcore band called Tanari. And, I mean, it made sense for them to play with any of those bands. And I think that band, to me, is punk as fuck, you know? Um, they would get up and, and just rock. And and But people would, they were on Deep Elm Records. Mm-hmm. And so they're classified as an emo band. Mm. And I'm like, well, yeah, that's that's emo. But to me, like emo, especially that era, is, is fucking hardcore. Mm. You know? Um, so I, I never really cared about the distinctions. I just cared about the spirit. Like, does it strike a, a chord with me? Does it does it hit me in my, my feels somewhere? And um, are these people being sincere to their own feelings about playing music? You know what I mean? To me, that's what hardcore punk is it's just you, you have to do something authentic uh whether it's marketable or not yeah yeah that's for me you've hit hit 400 nails on the head with just that <laughs> that end thing you know it it the genuine authentic part is is essential um before we start into some die young stuff definitely wanted to find out and inquire with your straight edge lifestyle and when did you find the path to be straight edge and was there a significant moment or something that happened that made you want to become straight edge? Yeah. I mean, it's, uh, I say it often. I mean, I credit to, to earth crisis and it was that, that, uh, my introduction to it was the, the VHS of Ozfest that they were on. Have you ever seen that one? Yeah. I love it. Yeah, I mean, they're playing that song Broken Foundation. They got the X's on their hands. And um, it's funny. Uh, so the guy who was the original singer of the original Finer Truth, went, he, he lived on my street, but he was friends with a, a dude who was slightly older. His name was Ben. And he, he ended up, Ben went and grew up and went on to play in a band called, I think, Ter- Teresa Banks Profiles. The Teresa Banks profile, which which became the Rise, that uh, was on Ferret Records, it was yeah. like a refused worship band. Mm-hmm. Um, so they went to high school together, and I was a little younger than them. And Ben had brought over that VHS to Jeff's house. Jeff was the there were two Jeffs who sang in, in Fire and Truth. This was the first Jeff, and um, I watched at their house, and and um, you know Ben was already he at the time he was like vegan straight edge. And so we were like younger and we're like, what is all this about? And I was just like, man, this is like the most pissed band I've ever seen. You know, <laughs> I love this. And uh, so, yeah, I got Gamora Season Ends after seeing that. And I was 14 when I, 
I saw that. And I remember I used to be hanging out with some friends back then and they were starting to experiment with drugs. And, you know, I had become aware of what straight edge was, but I didn't have any straight edge friends. There was that dude, Ben, but I was just acquainted with him. You know, um, I wasn't like old enough to like really be going to shows and like find out about the scene yet. So I would hang out with these friends and, and I was getting more into punk bands and hardcore bands and um, like sick of it all and bad religion and, and um, bands that are really like, I think tied in like as staples of the, of the culture of like punk and hardcore, you know? Hmm. And uh, you know, earth crisis was the one that I, I learned about straight edge and veganism. And uh, you know, I got that record and then shortly after I got destroy the machines and then I started going to shows and um, started meeting straight edge and vegan vegetarian peers, you know? And uh, at the same time, you know, I'd still be hanging out with these dudes on my block that were starting to snort coke. And, you know, I had done LSD with them, smoked some weed with them, got drunk. And man, it always made me feel like garbage. Mm -hmm. um, and, but they seemed to really think, you know, this is the way we like bond and like prove ourselves to each other. So we got to do more drugs, you know? And, when it got to people snorting coke, I started to feel like I didn't know them anymore. Mm -hmm. And, you know, because these are dudes that I moved to that block when I was like eight years old. And then at this time, I'm 14 going on 15. So, you know, I mean, for someone that's known someone half their life at a young age, I mean, you just you just don't you're not prepared for people to change like as you grow up. And uh, I, I felt like alienated from them, I think, because of drugs. And luckily... I had been exposed to what straight edge is and it was, you know, to, to a young kid that wants to find something to rebel against. I mean, I think most young men do want to find something to push against to define themselves. And, uh, that, that was it for me. It was like, Oh, well there's this, you know, I can play guitar and I can be straight edge. I can start a band like that. And I have these friends and we mosh hard <laughs> and we're not fucking pussies. We don't do drugs cause we're awesome. <laughs> So I, I think that was it. It was like, man, I don't want to, I don't, I've done other stuff with you guys. I, I don't, I, I try to line with this Coke stuff. I, I'm going to have to let y'all, let y'all go with this one. And, um, I think it's a great, you know, you know, I didn't come into it until later down the track, but you know, uh, in, in many ways I feel envious of people like yourself that were able to get on that path and it's a good path. It's not a bad path. There's no, you know, there, there was a time when it was being labelled bad, but I think that's just, I mean, it's a bunch of cock Like and a gang mentality? Yeah, it's, yeah, it's cock and balls, I think. I mean, that's a polite mm. way of saying it. It, it. It's just people that are a fear of something that's different decide to label it something to justify why they're not into it. And I think that's what a lot of people were doing for a time. But, you know, to discover it and be on that path from a young age, I think is outstanding um and amendable and it's also don't worry listeners we will come back to die young but it's something that also you have you know your career in other aspects has gained different chapters with and what i'm referring to is you know the power lifting and the book uh the way of the vegan meathead i mean it's you you found a way to empower and spread the message in other aspects. It's not just through the music. 
Yeah, totally. Uh, yeah, I I feel I look back on that fork in the road when I was like 15, and it's like I can be straight edge and and have give kind of I can claim this label, and I can find friends who who want to live the same way, and it gives me the the fortitude to to forge a different kind of path than what I saw in my neighborhood. And um, you know, I don't know. I mean, that's an interesting conversation about predis predisposition, you know, people's natural disposition that, you know, some people have addictive personalities, some people don't, like maybe I didn't have one and I wasn't going to go down that road no matter what, even if I experimented more with the stuff, but, uh, I certainly had something to rally around at a pivotal time in my life where I could have probably just partied too hard for two or three years and not gotten any scholarships and not done anything productive. <laughs> Sorry, I got dogs. <laughs> yeah, um, I've, got, I've got three, so don't worry about it. Okay. Yeah, I got three too. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, the timing of it was great. It just, it just emboldened me in going a different way. Um, and, and I, and I think in life, you know, when we find things that they continue to reward us, that, that feedback loop keeps us going in that, that, that direction. So yeah, now that, I've ended up being, you know, uh, I mean, I, I think veganism is an extension of the the whole poison-free lifestyle. Mm-hmm. Although I think ethically, it's it's a bit different in a lot of regards. But um, vegan and straight edge to me is pretty much in, inseparable. So to to be doing the athletic thing and then now to be uh, putting out books and talking about the subjects with people, uh, which I've done in Canada, Mexico, United States. Um, yeah, man, it's, it's been a cool ride and, uh, I'm really glad that that's how my life has ended up for sure. Well, I mean, the ride hasn't slowed down. I mean, don't say it in that context of like, yeah, it's been great. That's it. You know, it's still going. Oh, no, I know, man. I mean, there's still a ton of possibilities. I was actually working on the second edition of the book before you called me. I was looking back, I think with your powerlifting, you stated that you started being vegan around 2004, five. Um, when you, yeah. So when you started out, did you find the initial transition difficult or was it not hard at all? Well, I mean, it it was fine. Um, I, I wasn't training or doing anything particular, uh, physically back then. Um, you know, and I think to just transition from being a person that doesn't have any strenuous physical demands um, from being a non-vegan to a vegan, it's pretty inconsequential as long as you eat enough, you know? Mm. Uh, um, I find that, uh, there was some things that happened with my body nutrition. And, and again, I did this for an ethical reason. I, I didn't think about my health at all. <laughs> I didn't think I was going to get any kind of, uh, perk physically or, or health wise from going vegan. I just decided, ah, the damn veal calves, like it's the same industry. <laughs> I was like, I, I, I can't do it anymore. You know? So, um, I, I found that I, I did lose some weight and I was already small, uh, that first year when I didn't, I wasn't conscious of what I was eating. You know I mean? Uh, I mean, we, there was tofurkey sausage, I remember, and, um, you know, you go out to eat and you mainly go out and get tofu or falafel at places. It's like, I just didn't have a big appetite because I was a small guy and I um, I didn't really think about, I, th- I think most people kind of intuitively eat. Mm. 
And, um, you know, there was options. You know, I mean, I grew up in Houston, and Houston is the most um, ethnically diverse city in the world, as far as I've, I've heard. It's even uh, beats out New York City in a lot of studies, as far as being a melt, melting pot. So, uh, you know, there's Thai food, and there's Vietnamese food, and there's Ethiopian food, and there's Indian food, and uh, Middle Eastern food. And, I mean, you, you name it. There's just, and all those things have vegan options. So I could go eat anywhere. Um, but yeah, I just, I never was that conscious of, of uh, how much I was eating or whatever. And I felt fine. I just did get skinnier at first. Mm. And I would even say maybe a little flabbier. And I always, you know, now that I know more about nutrition, I'm like, oh, well, when you cut out, because I was a vegetarian before that. So when you cut out cheese, that's a, that's a lot of fat calories, which is going to, you know, put you in a surplus of calories more often, mm. and then you won't be losing weight. And there's also protein in cheese. And so when you, especially with something like pizza, where I just started eating basically bread with tomato sauce on it, <laughs> you, you know, you're getting less protein. You might be getting plenty of calories, but um, it's going to, it might affect your muscle mass, you know? So, and for me it did, but it didn't matter to me because I was, I was not, I didn't have any physical goals back then. I was, I don't know, more about music and reading and traveling and shit. And I just didn't think about food that much. I ate a lot of fuck. Uh, when I started, I ate a lot of fuck a potato um, and rice. <laughs> um, the, and um, became obsessed since then. My love for spinach is exponential. I can't explain to people. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you're going to say, what do you want with your salad? If you don't have spinach, I don't want it. Just don't want it. Like, just, you that's good. It. That's a good. That's a good. Uh, that's a good taste to have, man. I mean, spinach is. Uh, it's definitely a superfood of sorts. So. Yeah, and it's acquired. Uh, I've had a lot. And of- you know, fuck iceberg lettuce, man. That shit has got no <laughs> nutrition. I mean, it's water yeah, with it a little fiber in it. You know. <laughs> so you know, we we spoke earlier about you know find a truth, you know, kind of ended because, you know, basically time was up kind of thing. And Die Mm -hmm. Young formed around 2002 um, out of Texas, out of Houston, Mm -hmm. you know, where you were. What were the initial expectations for you? Was it literally just about getting out there and grinding and having the DIY mentality to perform and, you know, live out your passion? Was that the idea at the start? Yeah, it was was very much like... (laughs) I'm happy to not make it to 30. <laughs> um, very much like, well, you know, that that kind of drove some people from the band away over over time. You know, some people in the band are like, dude, you're like a fuck. You're like Captain Ahab. You're on a fucking suicide mission with this band, you know. Like, you don't you don't care about paying bills and you don't care about your future, but we we're normal people. <laughs> <laughs> we don't care about this as much as you do. Like you're insane. So, cause I used to say things like, we're not here to have fun. We're here to fucking spread a message and fucking live against the grain, you know? And some people were like, yeah, that's cool for like three months. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you know, I mean the, that first, uh, you know, the die young's prime years was Oh two to Oh nine. That was seven years of grinding. And, um, and, you know, we had like 20-something guys involved in the band in that time. So I was the only one that was there from the start to the end, you know. And um, 
Yeah, I just, I guess I had lost my mind, man. Like when I dropped out of school and uh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't have like a, you know, I, I grew up in a, a family where between my two parents, there's been seven marriages. Ooh, okay. So, <laughs> so I didn't have a fond idea of marriage. Um, I, I kind of thought all these things that we're taught to grow up and do, they just seemed like idiosyncratic. They didn't, there was no reason that we had to do them because they also don't work for a lot of people. Mm-hmm. And uh, since I didn't know what I want to do as far as career or, or you know, it's like, if what, I'm going to go to school, I'm going to work and put myself through school and be miserable and then get a teaching job and just like not get a fair amount of money. Mm. <laughs> so I might as well be poor playing music anyway. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, so I just, I just quit caring about, conventional values I think um I uh I just said fuck it and my goal was see the world play in a band see the world tell everyone what's on my mind whether they like it or not (laughs) and you know that I think that kind of drive was was appealing to people who wanted to be in a band like that and see the world but everybody I mean every just about everybody got worn out before I did. And then I, ultimately I got worn out too. Uh, cause it wasn't a lifestyle that was f- focused on any kind of big goal on the horizon. It was really kind of living for the moment. Well, I mean, were you guys, I mean, you look back and for going, um, hell for leather, basically with everything you were doing, in that 2002 to 2009, there were still four EPs in an album. Like you guys were still getting out music, and were you feeling oh, yeah. were you feeling like the music was being accepted and digested overall? Like were you you know were you able to look around and go, yeah, we're making a fucking crack of this. Like we're doing well. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, at the time. Now, um, I mean, we, we reformed in 2000, end of 2013, started putting music out again in 2014. Um, it's been very different since then, I, I feel, but I feel that's a social wavelength that we're missing. Whereas back when we were in the fray, playing 200 shows a year, and we were hanging out with people, I mean, a lot of, a lot of what makes hardcore bands valid is the social connection and the, the in your face quality of it and hanging with people and, and making relationships, um, of people that, you know, they, they back up what you're doing and the, the spirit you're bringing to the scene. And, and I think we had our base of that in pockets all around the world. And so it enabled us being not a huge band or anything to, to go get invited to all these places and, and make it work somehow. You know, we did three European tours, like two sp- spots of like, we didn't do all of South America, but we, we went down to that continent on two occasions, Central America. Uh, we did South, uh, East Asia one time. Um, all of US, Canada, we even did Alaska. I think we were like the first, we, we were treated like the first uh, like DIY hardcore band that went and played in like Anchorage and and places like that, you know, and, and then there was a wave of bands that went after we did it. 
um, you know, like I felt like when we would go play and make the friends and people would see us and they get that vibe of like, oh, this band's for real and they're not trying to just ride a trend. We earned a lot of diehard fans that way. Um, but, you know, I think the band was so angry and passionate that I don't know if it's held up super well for a lot of people over the past decade because they grew up and they just kind of be like, man, this, this is a little too much for me. <laughs> you know, it had its, it had its moment where it appealed to, to young, younger people. I don't, I don't know if we, I don't think you're giving yourself justice. Really? Uh, well, think. that's, but you know, that's, that's the kind of alienated way you feel, uh, over time. I think it's funny too. Cause now that with tooth and claw, Scott and I talk, I mean, Dude, Scott thinks everybody hates Earth Crisis. <laughs> he does. I've, I've, I, he couldn't get over <laughs> how much I knew about the band and how much I love the band. And he, he's like, everyone hates us. And I was like, no, 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 no. Like, you know, I think that's the thing with Die Young. You know, I'm without blowing smoke. It, it, you look back at that music and whether you still listen to it all now or not, it it put such a vital imprint on the scene in an authentic way, in a message way, with the intent. And the music was, you know, angry, but that's what it needed to be. Like, it would have been fucking weird if you guys came out with that message and it was like, you know, emo. I No, like, nobody <laughs> would have wanted it. It needs to be pissed off. It yeah. needs to be ferocious. And, you know, I went back... I, I listen to No Illusions quite a bit. I've got a playlist and that one's in there. So I hear No Illusions quite a bit on my phone when I'm in the car. Well, I appreciate that because I feel like that was, I mean, to me, that's our best full length, but we, we put it out when we were old. So I don't feel it got the same connection that, for example, when Graven Images came out, and, and granted, if we played the Graven Images songs live, you just see the place erupt versus mm. when we play your stuff, right? But I remember reading a comment from somebody on like, it might've been the old bridge nine message board, or it might've been the Texas hardcore message board back in the day. But I remember when we played that, uh, Hey, knock it off. <laughs> when we played that record release show, I remember reading this comment It stuck with me all these years where this kid said, I love this band and the lyrics have changed my life. And I'm paraphrasing, but he said, if, any of you reading this connect with these lyrics, I would consider you my friend. Oh, yeah. Yeah. No that's the kind of shit where I was like, oh, fuck, that's like, that's the thing. Like, that's, that's the, like, the most validating thing I could, I could imagine from, from doing a band, you know? Well, it, um, it, it's what I'm saying. Like, it, whether you think the band made the imprint or not, it did. And not a lot of people can say with their music, that it imprinted on and affected someone's life in a personal and emotional way. You know, a lot of bands just go through the motions, they just write the music, they just perform the music, and yes, people enjoy it, but does it actually improve themselves and improve their life? That's what Die Young have done. You, Whether it's one or 1,000 people, it has done that. Yeah, you know, I mean, I... I don't mean to, to downplay it so much. It's, I guess it's that thing that happens where, you know, I mean, the band has existed in name for 18, 19 years now. So, 
there's a lot of those years where it felt like nobody was connecting, especially, and this is, this is a thing with life that's tricky. It's when you, when you read something like that, or when you feel it, the reciprocation and the appreciation from the audience in the way that you were hoping you would get it. But then there will be years that go by where it, you don't, you're not on the top of the wave and you, so you kind of feel dismissed or like you're missing your own mark, you know? And uh, I mean, it's just that, that I guess that's a, an emotional, irrational response. Well, I think that's also a naturally creative response. I think that's natural for someone creative to also react like that. You you mentioned around 2009, you know, everyone had come and gone and kind of got burnt out and you got burnt out, you said. Um, before you reformed in 2013-ish, um, you know, I know you went off and did Band of Mercy and these kind of things, but did you really feel that maybe music was kind of played out and had enough for you? No. Um, what I learned was I couldn't put it down. Mm. I, I just had to find a new way to exist with it. Uh, I, I, what I learned was pay, playing 200 shows a year and being away from home all the time as I got older, it actually made me pretty miserable. Mm. Uh, I, I basically took the die young fire until it burned out. You know, that, that whole initial... I guess the impetus of, of wanting to do the band to just to <laughs> fan the flames of my rage, you know, and, and show that to the world. Um, you, you get tired of it. Hmm. So I, I used to think it had to be all or none with music. And, and I will say that trying to do a band any other way is really difficult mm-hmm. uh, because you, you're not, I still, I still don't think, most things I've ever done musically were taken as seriously as when Die Young was going at it hard and in people's faces, face to face, you know, mm-hmm. like just putting out music on the internet today or, or whatever, it, it doesn't have the same staying power as just being a live band that grinds it, you know, cause that that's, you make an experience and that's what people remember how they felt in those experiences. Uh, like, like I said, when, when people, when the, when we'll play a show and the response to the Graven Images songs is like three times better than any of our new songs is cause, or even the message stuff, which is kind of tough for me to listen to at this point. But like, I know for those people, they're tapping into when they got into hardcore in 2004, 2005, and we were the band doing the thing in their area. And it, it's not just the songs themselves. It's like this whole nostalgia of their experiences. You know, you're saying how life was basically slowed down a bit. You know, music had to, in some aspects, pause. But as we also know, as, as we've mentioned, as you guys then with Die Young started back up in 2013, you know, why start up again? You know, what was the reason for giving it another go and pushing the band forward again you know i think a lot of it was uh i mean i I always wrote the die young songs on guitar up until the god for which we suffer ep Mm -hmm. um so all that stuff between 
the very beginning demo and No Illusions was me writing the songs on guitar. And, uh, you know, I wrote all the Band of Mercy stuff. And then I was also playing guitar in a Texas band called Will to Live. Yep. Are you familiar with, with, with the album well? Old Habits Die Hard? Yeah, yeah. I, mm-hmm. Me and my buddy Chris, we wrote basically wrote that album um, as guitarists. And uh, Mike from Die Young, is he was originally... He was in Will to Live before he was in Die Young, and Eric from Die Young also plays in Will to Live. I mean, they're our brother band, you know? Mm. So um, I was playing guitar in Will to Live. We put that album out in 2013, I think it was. And uh, I had been doing Band of Mercy, which I think Band of Mercy only did like one tour and some weekends and, you know, not a whole bunch of shows, but we did like three records. And uh, I couldn't escape, for one... I would write songs for Will to Live, and then the dudes would go, that's a fucking Die Young song played in B, man. You can't get away with that. (laughs) Like, like we're not going to let you write Die Young and Will to Live. (laughs) Just write a fucking Die Young song, you know? Um, And then then it was also like I would play and go play shows with those bands, and people would be like, play the message, play Survival Instinct, play, you know, Graven Images. And I thought, oh, like some people actually still care. Like, that's cool. I didn't expect that to happen. Um, So that was encouraging, I think. And then the truth was, because I was writing riffs for Will to Live, uh, there was just naturally die young things. You know, it's like, well, what else would this be? Am I going to start a new band? Like another band? I can't can't justify that. (laughs) Let's just just do a die young record and see how it goes, you know? And uh, was it ex- was there an excitement? You know, I know I was excited. Yeah, you know, but was there an excitement stateside and fan base wise? Was there a buzz when you guys came back and you know you had chosen path and then no illusions? You know, did you get a groundswell of momentum again? I think we did at first. I mean, there's always that hype when you come back. Uh, you know, that year that we put chosen path out, we played. We got to play a handful of fests, you know, and that was cool. We got to do, uh, before it was before no illusions came out, but like one of my favorite bands of all time, catharsis did a comeback and wanted to play shows with us. Um, so that was also amazing. And, uh, I think we even did this run with Madball before no, we had, we were recording no illusions around the time, but like we got all these cool opportunities that we didn't get, prior you know like we played this is hardcore fest and um yeah it was like yeah we got we got basically what we wanted as a hardcore band play with our favorite bands play some fests and um uh play play locally when we could um i definitely was was more people were more amped up right when it started back up uh as with all things i think people get (laughs) desensitized to excitement and they got to move their focus somewhere else, you know? But I, I felt like we stepped it up as a band. Like, if I when I listen to Die Young now, I only listen to the most recent, recent stuff because I'm really proud of it. Uh, I think we just continued to evolve and uh, get better as a band. And, and I didn't want to bring the band just to be like, let's play everyone's favorites and have a good time. It was like, no, I've got new things to say. And this is the vehicle that 
I can say these things in and, you know, Da Young is just that, you know? So it, to me, it was totally called for like, you know, I hate to be the band that we did a big breakup show and it was awesome. And people came from all over and, uh, I feel kind of guilty about that <laughs> like years later. They're like, Oh, they spent all this money to come to Houston. And I mean, it was a good time, but you know, four years later, we're like, Hey, we got a new record. We're coming to see you again. <laughs> um, I felt a little guilty about that, but you know, uh, a lot of times, especially those diehard, I don't want to call them fans, but they're like really like friends of the band. I would always say, Hey, I'm, I'm sorry <laughs> that we did the dramatic thing. We broke up. They're like, no, 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 we're, we're stoked. We're stoked, you know, like. But you didn't do the kiss thing. You didn't do like, hey, this is our final world tour. And then, you know, it's down the path and it's like final world tour number seven. You know, <laughs> it's, that's taking the piss. Like that is. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. I mean, those bands succeeded doing that. Yeah. <laughs> Duke Priest and. Yeah. It's, it's crazy. You know, you know, at the end of the day, people only care about how you make them feel. If you're still bringing the heat on stage and, like, playing the songs they like, they'll forgive you. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, it's a bit, you know, I don't know. Like, surely it reaches a point where you bought the same Final World Tour ticket seven years in a row. At some stage, you got to think, maybe this isn't the Final World Tour. Maybe I just don't need to buy another ticket. Uh, yeah, I'll, I'll say this, when Da Young in 2008 basically announced we're going to start winding it down, I guess it would be 2009 that we did like a final U.S. run, which I think was, we, we played some final West Coast and East Coast shows. Man, all those shows were awesome. <laughs> oh, they would have gone <laughs> off. Yeah, because people were like, oh, they're never coming here again. <laughs> Some places we did and, and, you know, maybe 2015 or 2016 go back to, but. Um... <laughs> and then no one turns but, up. Know, we, we believed it was going to be the last time <laughs> at the time. <laughs> and it was great. And I was like, man, I wish every tour could be a last tour. <laughs> yeah, that's what you should do. Just anytime you play a show, say it's going to be the last show. And then two weeks later, <laughs> announce another one. Um, you know, what's going on with Die Young now? You know, I know, you know, pandemic aside obviously you can't do much show wise but i know that you know for you did the 2018 ep which i think is a fucking banger the god for which we suffer um you know thank you you still occasionally doing dribs and drabs here and there um but what's the current state of the band like is new music gonna happen soon is it gonna when you can tour, you're going to get out and do more shows. What's happening? I don't think so. I think the band's done making music. Mm -hmm. um, we have a show, like a pre-Furnace Fest show in uh, in September. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get Jeff and Kahan, who used to be our tour dogs, like 2007 through 2009. Um, they're they're going to they're from Birmingham. Uh, half the band was from Birmingham for a number of years. So uh, that should be a pretty special show um, because we were kind of like a local band there at that point. And because anytime we'd go east and we'd kick off a tour, we'd play a kickoff show in, in Birmingham. And um, those dudes have still been involved in the scene there and stuff. So we're going to play like kind of like an older song, like a classic set. And uh, I'm excited about that. Um, you know, there are different incarnations of Die Young and I've got, fond memories of most of them, but, but Jeff and Kahan were, 
were a really big part of the band for two to three years, you know, and uh, we haven't we haven't played with them since the. Uh, well, we haven't played with Kahan since the final show in 2009, but Jeff Jeff was part of the Chosen Path lineup, um, and he quit before uh, No Illusions came out. But um, it'll be fun, you know. I mean, I think that there's a there's a a space for dying to exist in that kind of capacity. Not anything that we're going to ambitiously pursue, but if we get asked to do something and it's fun and we can do it, then I'm all for it. What I learned in 2009, uh, 2009 is don't be dramatic and break the band up. I wish I didn't break the band up back then. I just thought, you know, at my age and, oh, it's got to be all or none. And and what I like about Die Young now is is that uh, we're just, we're just kind of open to things. And I like to leave it open-ended like that. And if we never do anything again, it's it's fine by me. I feel like I've done as much as I can with the band. Um, I think Alan, who was writing the last two things we did, like the God for which we suffer and the the single we did in 2019 called Defective Machines, I think he's he's tapped out um, for doing this kind of thing, and he's really was the brains behind those those releases. So. After uh, he stepped the game up with those riffs, I, I'm not that good a guitarist. I'm just, I'm just kind of like, <laughs> you know, I'm gonna leave it, man. I, I think we took it as far as we as far as we could, and we have this giant catalog for for a band that we could always revisit parts of if if people are interested. And in, you know, uh, I still believe in what the band stands for and 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 everything it did and. Um, if if people still want to see it, sometimes I I think that's amazing. Well, I mean, I, I I'm disappointed to hear that music mightn't happen, but it's it's good to, as you said that it's kind of you know open to whatever happens may happen. If it doesn't, it doesn't. Um, and you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. You know, you you probably as you said previously wish you'd never announced it, but it was the right thing at the time. Um, and just you've yeah. always got the memories of those banging farewell shows. Um, <laughs> and, you know, for me personally, uh, my, my focus has shifted more to writing mm-hmm. and my, my writing brand, you know, so, cause you know, I have a novel out and I have the way the vegan meathead, which is his own thing, the vegan meathead brand. And, uh, I think all that kind of, um, creative output has really taken the place of where a band could be. So... To, to me, Die Young could continue if the other guys were like, hey, we've got these riffs and we got to do it. Because I got things I can write about. But I guess musically, I don't feel like I can carry the band anymore. I, I, th- I think that everybody involved in the band, this current lineup, like everybody's too talented for me to try to like write things and make them play. Like <laughs> if, if they, I mean, those guys are really good. Like they're fucking really good musicians. So... Um, and I, I'm not. I'm a, I'm a punk guitarist, you know. <laughs> well, you do have something still to say, though. And, you know, I'm referring to what's recently come out, and that's Tooth and Claw. I mean, you you still have the ability to express yourself. You still have outlets every now and then. You know, you've also, um, if, if I'm right in seeing this, you've got Mainlander as well. Yeah, that one um, doesn't involve any original lyrical output by me. I'm kind of no. transforming yeah. folk songs. Yeah, mm. 
But thanks, thanks for noticing that one. Uh, I don't push that one very hard because I don't figure there's much of a a taste for it among a lot of people. But I have fun with it for sure. Well, I mean, uh, it's obviously you know anyone listening out there that you know wants to tap into folk music, you know, it's there. You know, it's very popular in certain parts of Europe. Folk metal, um, mm-hmm. massive. Mm-hmm. Um, but let's let's talk a little bit about Tooth and Claw. You know, I've had Scott on the show, and um, mm-hmm. that album Dream of Ascension is a fucking ball terror because it's. I think it's a it throws a curveball at you because you expect something, but you get a bit of everything. Um, how did the connect up come about, and were you at all, you know, nervous and Star Trek uh, starstruck to be doing something with Scott of Earth Crisis? Uh, well, there's a, there's a bit of history between me and Scott at this point. I mean, I didn't, Die Young never played with Earth Crisis until the whole comeback era when we were touring on Chosen Path. And we played a fest in North Carolina with Earth Crisis headlining. And, um, I remember, you no, know, I had met Scott many years before while I was touring, working for PETA and we did some Earth Crisis tabling at shows for them. Um, but I don't, I mean, apparently, apparently he followed and liked Die Young and I wasn't really aware of that. Cause I remember after that, that fest in North Carolina, I went up to him and I, and this was what, 2014. And I, I brought him a copy of the chosen path, uh, seven inch and a band of mercy, seven inch. And just to say, hey, man, I'm just so excited. Like, Earth Crisis is one of the bands that got me into all this. And um, really happy to finally get to play a show with you. And I gave him those records. And he goes, oh, yeah, man, I love these records. And and he goes, hey, are you guys available? Because uh, this wasn't, you see, 20, 2015 was the 20 years of uh, Destroy the Machines. Mm-hmm. And he goes, hey, are you guys available to go tour the West Coast with us next year for Destroy the Machines 20th anniversary? I was like, what? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that never ended up happening. It was supposed to be Die Young, Zabalba, and Earth Crisis. Mm. And it was supposed to be like Seattle down to San Diego. And uh, there's a lot of reasons. I think I think Earth Crisis, you know, they're all dads, you know. So uh, they had work and family things that kept them from doing a whole tour. And in the end, they just flew out and did two California shows and, and didn't bring us or Sabalba, you know? So, um, but it was like, he just asked us to do it like a 20 year anniversary tour of the out. Well, like the album that got me to be like, this is, this is the way I'm going to live my life. You know? Um, I, I, my jaw dropped, you know? And, um, we, we kept in touch a bit from then on and that, that tour never worked out. And I remember then like a year later, I was working on the, the band of mercy veganocracy EP and I, I was like, oh, I wonder if I can get Scott to do a guitar solo for the record. And he did, you know. So if, if anybody listens to the Band of Mercy, Veganocracy uh, record, the song, the world, the world Will See, Scott is playing the solo on that song. So that was a big deal, too. So, I mean, we had been in touch over the years. And then when uh, Die Young and Catharsis did those shows I was talking about in 2015. We did two separate runs with them. One was like Texas and New Orleans, and one was in the East Coast. Uh, Jimmy, who's in Tooth and Claw, who was, you know, the guitarist of Undying, and uh, one of the original members of Catharsis, 
who's now in the reunion lineup of Catharsis, um, he told me that him and Scott were starting a new band, which is the band that became Set. Mm-hmm. And uh, I actually did an audition for two of those songs that were on the first Sect LP. And they really liked it, but um, I think Andy was like, yo, guys, if I'm going to be, you know, Andy Hurley, he was like, if I'm going to be 40 and playing coffee shops with my friends in a political hardcore band, I I wanted to be dudes I know really well because I didn't know Andy very well at the time. I would say we're not like, we're just acquainted, you know. Uh, but, you know, so that's why I went, I'm um, not that Chris Callahan's vocal abilities weren't like the best choice for that band. I think they were, but they, they liked my demo. And I, and I think Scott will always say after that, he's like, man, well, I'd like to still do something with Daniel, you know, cause it, it was kind of like that this band would be cool to have Daniel in, but Chris is a more natural like guy for the crusty sound. And, um, and, you know, luckily, I, I never thought I'd get another opportunity to play with any any of those dudes. But during the pandemic, Scott hit me up and was like, hey, I got these riffs. Do you want to do something? I was like, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, man, it came, it came together really quick once he sent me those first couple songs, man. In a couple weeks, I went in the studio and we'd come up with a band name and all these concepts that we wanted to sing about. And, um it's been a lot of fun. It's been, it's been a cool exploration I'll say, because yeah, it's not what, I don't even think it's what we would expect it to be. We Um, let it become what it is. I love that, man. It's refreshing. It's still aggressive. It, it's still got a purpose. Um, it's still a banger. It's, uh, just a little bit outside the box. And when I mean that, I don't mean as in like it, it goes into an emo path. I just mean it's, it's, (laughs) it will surprise listeners and, I've said that to everyone listening before, you know, it's an album that needs to be digested. Um, And when I say an album, it is an album, you know, don't just tune in and listen to one song, give the whole thing a back to front uh, consumption. You know, I think nowadays we forget when an album comes out that it's done in a way like that on purpose. Um, So make sure listeners go out, Tooth and Claw, Dream of Ascension. I fucking can't recommend it enough. It's fucking amazing. Thanks, man. Yeah, we were, I think part of us were, you know, we're just being true to what's coming out of us right now, but we worried that there's those expectations of what it should be. And, uh, you know, I mean, it's not, it's not a political hardcore band. It's a, uh, I mean, mostly it's, it's like a, a metal band and we're getting it, I think, psychological and philosophical kind of ideas. So it's been to be more of like an experience that takes you to a different kind of headspace. Um, I, I can't really define what the goal of the band is other than just take you somewhere. That's great. Man. And it's somewhere within, I think. Yeah, and I think it's perfect. It's, you know, like I said, it's a banger. Um, now, I want to talk about, you You know, end up talking about your books for a sec, but I just want to ask one thing, um, and that's kind of an industry-based question um and it's a two-parter you know someone like yourself that's been around and seen the industry ebb and flow from being all about sales of cds and all of that jazz to now being all about how you digitally mass uh market things 
how do you see the industry for a band coming through today? And then the second part of the question is, do you think hardcore is being taken up by the younger generations the same as it was in the early 2000s, like bands like Die Young? Ooh, I don't know. I don't know if I have a good coherent answer to this. I mean, things change and we can't stop it. And some things that change are for the better and some things are not. Um, and I, I do feel that what makes a hardcore tick and what makes certain bands popular is more social than anything. I don't, I don't think it, and that can be these days, social media, but I mean, it was even social back when we were touring really hard, you know, um, we just did the social thing in person. And uh, I think that element will never go away. You know, uh, people really like when you're a band, you come to their town and sometimes you make friends with the people and they feel like it's a meaningful experience that you came there. And, and like I said, it's like the songs become more than, than just songs. Then it's, it's this whole experience in your memories that you tie to a band. And, um, I don't think that'll ever change and I don't think it should. And, and I, I think that's really the most important thing, you know, it's, it's really about like narrative in our lives and the way that the music scene, uh, helps us enrich a sense of meaning in our lives. Um, as far as sales and all that stuff. Yeah. I mean, I remember the days where <laughs> we had to do sound scans for the label and mm. get somebody to sign it at the club after and it was fucking horrible. <laughs> And and now nobody can sell records anymore anyway. So it's all about the metrics on whatever streaming apps and you know that feels kind of meaningless. But and those things seem very fly by night, you know, mm. uh, because uh, a band can have a, a record come out and have fifty thousand listeners in two weeks, and then three weeks later down to two thousand because people are onto the next thing and and. Yeah, I guess sometimes I worry about the quality of connection people have now that music is just so consumable and it's like cheaply consumable. Um, I, you know, I don't feel like people sit down and read the lyrics like they used to. No. Because they, they don't have a physical copy of the record like they used to. And um, that's that's a bummer. Uh, I, I feel like that has something to do with the way we even emotionally communicate to each other. I mean, I credit bands like Trial and Bad Religion and, I mean, shit, I'll even say like Converge and, and Catharsis and, and, and Earth Crisis too for helping me grasp philosophical and political and emotional ideas and, and reflect on things. And I feel like in, in around people my age, like we all can talk about music in the same way. Mm, mm. And I, I don't know, man. I mean, I, I'm not trying to sound like some old. No, <laughs> no. Touch, uh, no, not at all. Grumpy, grumpy dude. I mean, it's like young people just can, they connect with it differently. Yeah. Look, I mean, I've said it many times um, on the podcast and listeners will know my thoughts and it, without sounding like an old man, you know, my thing was nowadays with your devices and streaming and that, it is amazing 
that you have this ability to access anything and everything from around the world and have it on you at all times. But I think the problem nowadays is part of the problem is you're not invested. You didn't pay that money for that album when you go to listen to it. Because I remember you, I would go to the CD store and I'd saved up money for three months to buy that CD. I then am invested. I'm going to like that CD. And whether I do straight away or not, that CD becomes part of my life. And, you know, my, my worry is nowadays, if you don't like this lead single from the band, you can just go, nah, I'm going to go find a band from Russia. And you just listen to that instead. Yeah. That's my only thing. Um, that was my little, little ramble. It's, it's, uh, there's nothing we can do about it though. No, other than try to foster, I think a memorable experience when we do get to be in face to face with people. So, you know, I, I am looking forward to the moment where we can do some shows with tooth and claw because I am getting the feeling that people are getting something out of this. They are. I've seen a lot of reception to it. Really good reception. Yeah, it's, uh, we're Scott and I are like, whoa, what's where's all the hate? Like, why aren't we getting hate? Yeah. <laughs> like, you know, people seem to be saying it's refreshing and like, you know, they like that the content is not exactly what they would expect, and you know, uh, so we're just like, whoa, okay. <laughs> This is weird. <laughs> so I think if we could get out there and connect face to face and feel the energy in the room, then we can make some really special. Uh, and I and I hope we get to sooner or later. We we are talking about it. We do have a booking agent. We are looking at options. It's just it's a logistical thing, you know. Well, I mean that that's that's even better for fans like myself to hear that. Now, want to just also touch on just very briefly that you know as you mentioned the you know being a person who creates things in a novel sense. Um, Now, for anyone listening, um, you know, you're not a man, Daniel, who dabbles in one thing. You've got two poetry books, and recently, well, it's 2019, but it is still recent, you released Cane Field, um, your first novel. Um, Yeah. I didn't get to really do any events or or much of anything to, like, really push that. Again, because... Uh, so yeah, it's like it didn't come out because then the pandemic happened. And I didn't get to do much but, on the road, but you know. But that's exciting. You you yeah. you know, creating a book is also got to be a bit of a mind fuck. Is it is it a minefield minefield of difficulties, or was it a pleasure to do and you can't wait to do it again? Well, I cannot wait to do it again and to do it better because you know. Uh, and, th- and thank God or whatever out there for self-publishing because um, a lot of times people say the first book you write <laughs> is just about learning to write and it's probably doesn't warrant being published. <laughs> um, you know, I've gotten a lot of good reception from this book and I think it's enjoyable for the people who are, who are naturally interested in it, which is mostly people who come from the hardcore and punk scene because <laughs> they can relate, you know, to the content in it. Mm. But yeah, it's, uh, I was learning how to write. I didn't know if I could actually belt out a book. You know, I mean, it took me about three years from start to finish. And I would walk away from it for months at a time and come back and see it with new eyes and fix things. And that was a, it was a very in-depth process. I would say it was the most uh, strenuous and detail-oriented project of any that I've done. Um, you know, because the Vegan Meathead book is about 140 pages or something and it's it's not the same kind of writing you know i'm not trying to really 
uh, emotes, like tell a story. It's not storytelling for one, you know, it's just, it's about nutrition. And, uh, I, I did write that first, but, um, Canefield was more coming from a place where, you know, I'm drawing on personal experiences. It is essentially like confessional fiction. So it's not purely autobiographical, but it's coming from a very autobiographical place. And then I need to, I need to learn how to frame it in a way that that justifies even existing as a story to tell, you know, because if you're just talking about yourself, people don't really care that much. Usually it's like, it needs to be relatable on a more universal level. And I, and I'm happy that for the people who've reached out to me personally about reading a book, some, some were friends, some were people I didn't know that well, um, that they got that from it. So I think that was, you know, they provided something cathartic about, experiences we all go through with relationships and coming of age and figure out who we are, that kind of thing, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, so I'm, I'm still finding my voice there and I, and I do have a, a second book that I have the ideas for and I've done some kind of, um, plotting for, but, uh, I, I haven't gotten into the thick of writing it yet. But it's not something. It's it's not something that I'm gonna stop doing. That's definitely where I'm gonna keep uh, hammering away. It's a, it, it's exciting because clearly you're you're someone that creatively isn't ever gonna stop. I mean that's that's what excited. Um, you know it's great, man. Not a lot of people are like that. So um, you know that's a a thing you should tip your cap at. Now, um, Daniel, we are about to wrap up, but hmm? you do not get away without doing the final segment everyone's had it <laughs> scott's had it oh. um okay i think i remember what this is yeah yeah vogel's had it um you know every everyone has had it um it's called. all right well if if kraus and vogel have done it i have to do it too that's for sure it's uh pick your poison <laughs> um there are some people that are listening that have probably forwarded through our entire chat just to get to this moment um <laughs> They, they started out and they're like, these guys are boring me and they've skipped to here. So he, they're here now. Um, um, so now you get a choice of two. You pick your favorite of the two. You, mm -hmm. you do not need to justify your answer, but you are welcome to justify your answer. Now, we start off on food. Now, all the food ones are vegan options for you, of course. Okay? Of course, yeah. Now, pizza or a burger? pizza because man there were many years as a vegan we did not have good vegan pizza mm. so i still consider it a delicacy chinese takeaway or indian takeaway Ooh. depends on uh what part of my programming cycle i'm in for lifting if i need more protein it's going to be chinese mm. if i don't care and i'm partying it'll be indian okay um, good answer. Um, risotto or spaghetti? Uh, anything but spaghetti. Oh. Tour tour traumatized me about spaghetti. <laughs> <laughs> Too much spaghetti. <laughs> um, soft taco or crunchy taco? Here, here in Central Texas, we're we're big on the soft taco. Okay. Okay. Um, taco or nacho? Taco. Okay. Are you having it with guac or no guac? Always guac. Okay. Smooth peanut butter or crunchy peanut butter? 
all peanut butter is good by me, but uh, usually I probably get smooth just because it, it blends. I use a lot of peanut butter in smoothies, so it just blends, it blends a little better. Uh, coffee or tea? Coffee. Okay, okay. Um, fudge or caramel? Mm, fudge. Okay. Uh, you're going to have your last ever meal. Are you having it at home or are you having it at a restaurant? Uh, definitely a restaurant. Okay. Uh, new movie comes out. You going to the cinema or are you going to watch it on the couch? Uh, I miss going to the cinema. You know, that's that's like the, uh, you know, I haven't done it in a million years. It feels like a million years now. But mm. that's, you know, that's the that's like the church experience, like live shows, cinema. That's the church experience for us secular folks. <laughs> um, spend the day at the beach or spend the day at the snow? Beach. Now, the next one should be the easiest one of the lot. Cat or dog? <laughs> I, I don't have anything against cats, but I just wound up with dogs. <laughs> so I, I'm definitely more a dog person. Um, I am allergic to cats, too, sometimes. So. Oh. Um, Terminator or Predator? Predator. Rambo or Rocky? Rambo. Star Wars or Star Trek? Star Trek. Wow. Oh, that's, yeah. That's nice. Okay, that's refreshing. <laughs> that's refreshing. I, 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 love, I love Joseph Campbell, and he was a big influence on George Lucas and writing Star Wars. I just have always thought the concepts are too dumbed down. And that's why they're so popular. <laughs> yeah, anything watered down is very popular. Um, yeah. James Bond or Jason Bourne? Neither. Ooh. Can I can I do that? Yeah, you can do that. I'll let I'll let I'll let it go. I'll let that slide. <laughs> um, South Park or Simpsons? Uh, old Simpsons. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, 90 Simpsons. <laughs> Slayer or Pantera? Oh, fuck. Man, it's hard. That's really hard. <laughs> I, I will say, I think Pantera had a bigger influence on me first. Mm, okay. Um, um, you know, Slayer, I feel like I end up ripping off more in all my bands. They trans, you know, they just translate to hardcore better. Yeah, they do, they do. Um, but you know, Pantera, man, I, I don't care what anybody says about Pantera. This is one of the best bands of all time. So I don't know. Yeah, that's that's tough. I might, I'm gonna probably have to go with Pantera. Okay, Terra or Madball? Ooh, I think Terror would uh, totally approve if I picked Madball. Yeah. Yeah. No diss to terror. <laughs> no, for you me, terror without Madball, you know. For me, that's like picking my one of my, you know, picking my favorite dog. Um, it's a bit difficult. <laughs> um, I, ca I can't. I mean, uh, terror nudges it for me, but that's because I've got five terror-based influenced tattoos. Um, so, <laughs> um, and I do have a Madball tattoo as well for anyone listening. So it's not. I'm not. Yeah, you know, I've got the I've got the classic <laughs> Madball logo on my calf. Um, right, Metallica or Megadeth? 
Definitely Metallica. Okay. Um, Madball or Agnostic Front? Madball. Okay. Sick of it all or H2O? Sick of it all. Offspring or Green Day? Offspring. Okay. Um, Stage dives or mic grabs? Well, as a singer, I like it when people know the words. Mm. So, mic grabs. You're going to go to a show. You're watching from the pit or you're watching up the back by the sound desk? It depends. I, I, I can still get in the pit. Okay. I, uh, I'm i pretty selective. Um, Earth Crisis will get me in the pit. Uh, Ringworm will get me in the pit. Um, if uh, Crowbar's playing, I might not be in the pit, but I'll be up front. It's, it's the, the legends will get me in the pit, but most of the time I'm just checking it out at this point. <laughs> yeah, uh, I'm, I'm in mosh retirement. Um, yeah. My knees hurt as soon as I get near the mosh pit. <laughs> Um, they just feel what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> now, second last one. Imagine they, imagine they exist on their own, so they don't need each other to exist, but would you rather tour for the rest of your life or record music for the rest of your life? Record. Nice. Recording is, is the most like magical part of uh, being in a band, I think. Making something come to life. Now, touring can be magical too, but there is a lot of downtime and misery in touring, even when touring is good. Mm. Now, last one. It's the only triple one. I'm going to give you your all-time favorite album. Now, the way I give it to you is also the only way you can listen to it. Now, would you like it on CD, vinyl, or on your phone? Um, CD, man. 90s all the way. Yeah, buddy. <laughs> I've still I've still got an extensive collection. Um, yeah, I can't let it go. Every nah. time um, I've been involved with somebody and like lived with a woman, she'd be like, "Why the fuck you have to bring all these things?" I'm <laughs> <laughs> like, "Yo, yo, yo, baby, these are my books." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, my library. <laughs> I've got I've I've got close to what three two to three thousand of them and yeah. the wife's like look you can't have the your you know because i've got like a study kind of den she's like you can't have the room cluttered with that crap so it's all sitting right. they're all sitting in boxes in the garage yeah. i still have them um they're just not on display my vinyl yeah, on display. The, the past couple places i've lived uh it's been that way mm. but i, I don't want to get rid of them i know what will no, happen I can't, I can't get rid of them no because the moment i get rid of them i will regret that I got rid of them. So totally, totally, man. That's wild. Um, Daniel, first thing I gotta say, thank you for your time, for your energy. Um, thank you for being you. Uh, this is invaluable to me and the show. Um, it was great chat, really relaxed. Um, laughs had. Uh, I've loved every minute and and very appreciative of you giving me this time. Yeah, likewise, man. Hope hope we get to meet one day. Yeah, look, get down to Australia. Get down to Australia and um, let's, on have, the list. let's have Chinese or Indian, depending on how you're feeling that day. <laughs> All uh, right. You, you pick. Um, I'll buy. Um, but, yeah, look, you're a legend. Stay in touch. Um, let's, let's do a part two down the track, too. Let's, let's oh, yeah, sure. Love to, man. Plenty more we can chat about. Um, go look after those dogs. They, look like, they sound like they need some attention.
Yeah, they're going to get a walk. <laughs> <laughs> um, thanks, brother. Again, much love. Um, a lot of respect. and really appreciate this, dude. Thank you, man. All right, you Good take chat. care. All right, later.
So that was my chat with Daniel of Die Young and also of Tooth and Claw. At the end there, you heard four tracks from Die Young. First track was called Bear Witness. 
Second track was called Resolve. Both of those are from the release titled No Illusions. Track three was Fuck the Imperialists, which is from the album Graven Images. And the final track you heard was Conditioned from the release Chosen Path. Now's the part of the show where I spark that thing inside you to support the band that's been on the show. So if you enjoyed the music or you enjoyed the conversation, now's your chance. Jump online, consume it, download it, get into it. If you're into physicals, get yourself a CD, get yourself a vinyl. And lastly, if you're into merch, make sure you grab yourself a shirt, a hoodie or some shorts if you're able to find them. I've got to take this moment to thank Daniel again. Thank you so very, very, very much, dude, for taking time out for me and the Mosh Zone. Much love, much respect, much appreciated. I'll stay in touch. Let's do a part two very soon. And that's it. That's the Mosh Zone episode 167. Done, dusted, all wrapped up, locked away for this week. <laughs>